Many of us are familiar with the words of this psalm, especially the opening words. I'd like someone to read, please, Psalm 19, slowly and clearly and loud enough, if you would. And let's just listen to the word being read from Psalm 19. Praise the Lord. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and than honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have domination over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Now I'd like someone else to please read the same chapter, Psalm 19 in the New Living Translation, if you could read also slowly, clearly and loud enough. Psalm 19, NLT version. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet, their message has gone throughout the earth. And their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens 
and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey him. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. We've seen the psalm in two different versions. The reason we read it is to remember that the description of the Bible is given here. This book that we have in our hands, pardon me, in our hands, from Genesis to Revelation, speaks about itself in different areas within the book. There's a testimony about the Bible itself within the Bible. And here's one such place. When we read Mark's Gospel, and we're reading about the history of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ while he was on the earth, we are reading the Word of God. We're reading the Bible. And a portion of the Bible... And so whatever the Bible says about itself in Psalm 19, it's saying the same thing about Mark's Gospel because it's part of the Bible. What is the Bible saying about itself? The Bible, as we know, is a group of books or a collection of 66 books, which is the inspired revelation of God given to mankind, written over the period of some 15 or 1600 years, written by somewhere around 40 different authors, and it covers a history when we look at the creation of the earth from Genesis, it covers the history of this world for about the past 6,000 or so years. A collection of books written beginning around 1500 BC, written over the period about 15 or 16 centuries, culminating with the revelation of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ in about 90 AD or so. So from 1500 BC to 90 AD or 1445 BC, 
it's about 90 AD or 100 AD, roughly about 15 centuries, thereabouts, covering a period of history, six millennia, 6,000 years. Mankind being created around 4,000 BC, and then the worldwide flood during Noah's time, about 2350 BC, somewhere around there. And then 2,000 years or so after that came the Lord Jesus Christ, about 2,300 years after that. And then to our present day, about 2,000 years roughly from the creation of man to the global flood that happened during Noah's day, and then 2,000 years again to Jesus Christ, 4,000 years, and then from Jesus' time to our present day, another 2,000 years. So roughly 6,000 years of history are covered in these 66 volumes that we know as the Bible, all the New Testament combined. About the Bible itself, it's called the law. It's called the Torah, as the Jews know it. It's called instruction. The Bible is called commandments. The Bible is called testimony. The Ark, as we know, is called the Ark of the Testimony. Within it, that chest that was made of uh, acacia wood covered with gold, that sacred Ark which carried the presence of God, Within it was included, among other items, a copy of the writing that God gave Moses. That's part of the Bible. And throughout the Bible, we have thousands of commandments. So the Bible could be called the law of God, the testimony of God, the statutes of God, the commandments of God, the judgments of God. All of this speaks of the Bible. Mark's Gospel is one very slender volume in the collection of 66 books and a small percentage of space taken up in that one book, the tome called the Bible. And yet, it is the law of the Lord. What I mean to say is, with all of these statements, is that when I read about Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, when I read about the Lord led away to an unfair trial, unjust trial, in every single way possible, both by Jewish law and by Roman law, no credible witnesses tried at night, And even the local political ruler, Pontius Pilate, the governor or the prefect in charge of this region of Judea, he himself saw that these Jews, having a matter concerning their own law and blasphemy, he could care less about it, but there's a riot happening and he has to take care of it because the Rome, Roman powers have set him there to keep peace and keep things running smoothly. He himself knew 
that none of these witnesses match. But everything went on to condemn the Lord, innocent as he was. Reading this section, we're reading something that the Bible says in Psalm 19 is perfect, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. Reading this part of Mark's gospel, this narrative, we're reading something that has an effect more than just some historical data. It's able to convert our souls as we read Mark. It's doing something to restore us back to the center of our lives, which should be the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read, no matter what we're going through in life and where we're headed today, the Word of God centers us and keeps us from being scattered all over the place within. Reading this section of Mark's Gospel about the Lord's final days on the earth before he conquered death and defeated sin and the devil on the cross, it makes me wise. Yes, even reading what we're reading in Mark. Psalm 19, the Bible speaking of itself says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. His own witness about everything. The truth makes me wise. A person who's led away by folly, God comes and restores us and gives us wisdom to direct our paths. Reading Mark's Gospel rejoices our heart. How? Even though the suffering is so grievous, it just cuts to our conscience. We know that the Lord Jesus did it out of love. His love gives us confidence. Hallelujah. To know that the Lord understands my suffering more than anyone else because he went through more than anyone else. And with that, as it's written in Hebrews, he's able to sympathize with me and you. Whatever we're going through, frustration and trouble, sorrow, even feelings of anger. If anyone had a cause and reason to be angry and instantly wipe out all of the opponents that were there gainsaying and ridiculing him between the Romans and the Jews, the Lord had every right, but he didn't do anything. Not because there's no sense of justice within the Lord Jesus. He knew. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and he entrusted himself to the Father for that whole period. The Lord Jesus models for us and conveys to us and imparts to us something by the Holy Spirit when we read any part of the Bible. Every part of the Bible. The Bible says in Second Timothy 3.16, that the Word of God, every part of the Bible, is God-breathed, inspired by God. Every part of Scripture, it says all Scripture, what is Scripture? It's the writing that God has given us, the testimony, the law, His commandments. The Bible says this holy writing, or the Scripture, is given by inspiration of God, meaning God breathed from the Holy Spirit. 
and it's profitable. It gives me a net gain in my soul, in my life, for eternity, because it's good for me for doctrine, for real truth and teaching, for reproof, which means to show me what's wrong and convict me, for correction, show me how to get it right, for instruction in righteousness, to continue my education or training. That's what it means in the Greek. So every time I come to the Word of God, understanding what it is I'm reading, it's doing a marvelous work if I approach it right. Hallelujah. And that's the reason we've looked at Psalm 19 briefly before we go into the Gospel of Mark again. I want to continue reading this section here. Let's go back to Psalm 19, verse 7. If you want a description of the Bible, not only can you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, but may I encourage you to make a note in your Bible with 2 Timothy 3.16 as well as Psalm 19, 7 to 11. The Old and New Testament, you have a description of the Bible itself. And what is written here? The character of the Word of God. What the Bible is all about. What good will it do me to read it? The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting or restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The word means it is trustworthy. Making wise the simple, which means people who are foolish. We live in a world that is full of folly. They go after things that don't matter, things that will hurt them, and they continue doing it. But we're called out of the world, so God gives us a path through his testimony. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. These are the mandates or commandments. And again, it talks about the ordinance or the precepts, what God has set up. In the next part of verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It's not just a set of laws that I have to watch out for and try to make sure I obey like man's laws, whether it's immigration laws or traffic laws, how many people rejoice in them? They rejoice to read the, the motorist handbook from DMV. They rejoice to read about the immigration laws. Rejoice to read about uh, different laws that man has instituted. What well, we could, if we appreciate the benefits, perhaps... Someone who has broken the law and ended up in trouble can appreciate how the law can serve to protect them, protect other people. Perhaps someone who is needing assistance can rejoice in a law that gives them favor to make them comfortable and bless their families, reunite their families. The Word of God rejoices our heart because it does much, much more than any human law can do, even favorable ones. 
It does something to our inner man. You know why? Because, again, here's a description. Hebrews 4.12, we can add that also. Someone please turn in your Bibles about the Word of God discussing what it is. Hebrews 4.12. I'll read it. Hebrews 4.12. Is there someone to read it? Praise God, Pastor. Hebrews 4.12, MLT version. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Someone would ask you, what is the Bible anyway? What makes it different? Well, these three passages can give us a whole lot. From Psalm 19, Hebrews 4, and 2 Timothy 3. Not only describing its character, but its effects. It's unlike any other book. Because it's the Word of God. It actually is able to dig into our souls and expose who we really are on the inside. And then help us and heal us. And conform us and restore us back to what we should be. That's the power of God's Word. So anything we read from Genesis to Revelation, even things that we may think, well, culturally... It has nothing to do with me. It does spiritually. Because every scripture is profitable for us. To teach us the truth. To bring us conviction of what is not right. And then to teach us how to get it right. And then to train us in that perfect path. When we look at individuals, we have prescriptions in the state health department and the governmental uh, health agencies in virtually every country. And you have charts. And your local pediatrician can produce a chart of what is the ideal weight and ideal height and the ideal growth milestones that a child should have. Why? Because it's by that standard, as we heard even recently in the evening call, evening Bible study, there are measurements or standards. And when the pediatrician or parent looks at the child's development or an adult looking at their development, uh, their restoration from being perhaps underweight, severely underweight or severely overweight or severely um, malnourished internally and you can't really tell on the outside everything looks fine and healthy something's going on but if all of those things check off okay with all the tests and diagnostics then there's a feeling of conformity to that standard that gives me wholesomeness that I'm at a good place that's what the word of God does for us it brings us back to the Savior but it's not merely a road it's a healing bomb. And remember what the Lord Jesus said in John's Gospel. He said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and life. There's a power from the Holy Spirit who breathed this word into man to write it down. They can transfer to us. All of this is absolutely true and practical. 
for us today. Going back to Psalm 19, the commandment of the Lord is pure. Where can I find something like this? Enlightening the eyes. It's glorious. It sets my eyes on fire, ablaze to see the glory path. Hallelujah. The commandment of God sets me on the glory path to be able to see the glorious path that God has for me, life and journey. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. We know from Ecclesiastes, the fear of the Lord involves keeping God's commandments. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All of this are more descriptions of the Bible. And it lasts forever. Wonder of wonders that we can have a copy of something that came out of eternity broken to time and then will transcend time, go back to eternity as far as we're concerned. We were created in time. Time was created in eternity. One day time will dissolve. It'll be over. It'll be wrapped up. But we who are created in time will go on into eternity when time is over. Because the Bible says in First Peter that you were birthed by the incorruptible seed of the word. We are born again by this word that came out of eternity. And we've got born again by that same word. And because the eternal word is within this destructible flesh, when the destructible flesh self-destructs, we'll have an indestructible body that can carry the eternal word into eternity. And we have a copy of that powerful, eternal, omnipotent word that we can actually read in our native language, our learned language, and understand and somehow the communication happens where God who lives in eternity is conveying messages, not in Morse code or some uh, machine language that we have to sit and try to decipher, but through the Holy Spirit, even the most illiterate person hearing the word of God and then if they can read it read it are able to actually receive communication from outer space from the highest heaven hallelujah change my whole existence my whole direction the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether All that God has produced, his verdicts, his determinations, his understanding, all of his just ways are revealed in the Bible. It is written about the Bible that contains the judgments of God that they are true and righteous altogether, not one flaw. 
the word of the Lord, is flawless. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. In any society, in any era virtually, gold translates into wealth. You can buy a whole lot with gold. It's a commodity to be traded. Everyone knows that. But you get the best gold. A small portion of mass that occupies a relatively small space. You might be able to buy a whole city with that gold, depending upon its quality and amount. But the Bible says, His word that we read and we meditate on and we study morning after morning is more than the best gold you can find truly in value. And the taste to my soul, no matter what I eat, what I drink and what I can do for my body, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover by them is your servant warned. Word of God makes us sharp to see the devil coming as it were a mile away. All the pitfalls that people fall into, can we not see that? They say that history repeats itself and that's one of the greatest tragedies that mankind nationally and globally they keep entering into conflict and doing things wrong and it seems like uh, the styles and fashion may change externally but the human heart is still plagued with the same lusts the same desires for power and money and pleasure and they keep hurting each other to try to get most of it that they can as much as they can God has come to our lives to show us no matter what your people went through, whether your father, mother, your grandmother, great-grandmother, your uncle, you don't have to follow in that track where they've been worshipping idols, not necessarily statues or pictures posted with all kinds of imaginations that are demonic. doesn't even make sense when you look at the religion of man, really. But the true religion that comes from God is pure. And it actually does good to my soul. It's more than just some kind of philosophical or sentimental words to admire and poetic stuff. God's word delivers. God's truth. God's comfort. God's warnings. There's a new history God has brought us into. His story, truly. His story. God's life that he's planned for us is beautiful. Oh, what a, what a blessing. You know, there are people who say, no matter what it is, it can be a black ghetto, an Indian ghetto, Japanese ghetto, white ghetto. Uh, this place and period in one's life and experience that seems to be where the underprivileged dwell. No matter what race, in every country you can find, in city virtually, these things called ghettos. And we know them as a place that really is not going to help a person realize what they're supposed to become. There's a place where there's stereotyping and bias. And often, too often, there's economic hardship 
and social injustice and restrictions. It's a whole mess. People can't thrive. But when somebody comes out of the ghetto, whether they're black, white, brown, yellow, and they make it, they have money coming in, and they change their surroundings and their schools, and they have the finer things in life, and all of a sudden they feel a sense of, you know, I'm more valuable than I was taught, or I thought I was. They still end up going to hell. But with God, there's a sin ghetto that God brings us out of, where the enemy is oppressing us continually. He rescues us out of that spiritual ghetto so that we can be what God has called us to be, shining for him and full of his glory, full of love. That's what the world is looking for, real love. Jesus has it for us. No wonder the early Christians risked everything. They gave their lives, but they couldn't deny this love. So powerful and real. And because of God's love, we're warned when he gives us the word so that we don't fall into the same trap our people have fallen into for ages. All of these sins that claim the spiritual lives and physical lives of our ancestors, the wages of sin is death. The Lord warns us to avoid sin. And in keeping of them, Notice it's not just a negative thing, there's a positive thing. We leave something to go to something better, and what that is is a great reward. God gives us a great reward. Mark's Gospel, in chapter 15. The Word of God that is going to profit us today even more. As we read, and straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes. All night they arrested him in the evening, and he's being dragged from one end of the city to the other. If you look at the map of Jerusalem, and you see where the headquarters were of these people, Herod and Pilate, and where they actually came and did the trial from the Jews to the Romans and the Jews following and the Lord's being dragged around. Imagine that, in the middle of the night. And he's been beaten, abused horribly. They throw him into a prison, they say underground, for some hours. Why did the Lord have to be hunted like this and battered and thrown around? That's my Jesus, that's your Jesus. May the Lord's suffering break our hearts. That we stop thinking about ourselves and think about Him. Say, Lord, I'm here for you, not for me. Because you gave everything for me. And they bound Jesus after they consulted in that council. They led Him away as if He did something wrong, something horribly wrong. They bound Him. and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered, 
nothing. So that Pilate marveled. He had never seen a man fully composed and fearless standing at the brink of death which Pilate was able to command at any moment. He didn't tremble. He didn't try to get himself out of this. Of this plan. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. He wanted to be good with the Jews, try to keep things in order, and through that tact, he thought he can have the best of both worlds, but he was standing as a person on trial before heaven. Pilate was. Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them whomever they requested and there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. And the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. Notice this ruthless Roman governor stepping up they tried to delay and possibly forego any punishment to Jesus further than what he had received. Certainly, capital punishment. He was trying to avoid that. Something going on with Pilate. He can see there's something, some madness happening here. They have no witness against this man. And, and of course, we also know from reading the story of the other Gospels, that his wife came and said, I've suffered a nightmare, dreams, because of this man. Pilate trembled more. But here he says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He knew that the chief priest had handed him over, handed him over because of envy the chief priest that really enraged him stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Satan in the synagogue. These men who are supposed to be the leaders in Israel's spiritual life, they were filled with the devil. And this is something that can happen every generation. The very people that are supposed to be the custodians of truth the disseminators of truth, the people that are supposed to be noble and looked up to and imitated. No wonder the Lord indicted them and he said, you people, you look all religion on the outside, but your hearts are full of greed, you ravening wolves, your rotten bones inside, like a sepulcher. Satan was having a field day, as it were, pressing the buttons of these people and they yielded they shouted we want the murderer released not Jesus what madness verse 12 Pilate answered and said to them again what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews so they cried out again notice they didn't say beat him up 
bloody him some more, let him learn his lesson, put him away in a cold cell for the next 40 years. They said, kill him. And that too, crucify him. We want the worst death for him. What's possessed them? Well, no less than Satan. It's what happens when somebody rejects the truth. They can get so hardened that they get possessed with the devil and they can't rest until they kill the person who's told the truth. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried all the more, Just kill him, crucify him. We don't want to hear any reasonings. Get him out of our face, off of the planet. The Pilate wanting to gratify the crowd, well, he obliged they did exactly what they wanted. They released Barabbas to them. This known murderer, and that too in a rebellion. Pilate thinks that he can be slick here, that he won't get in trouble, because he feels that, as far as he's concerned, they wanted this, and it's their matter, and I'm just facilitating what they want. Every accomplice in every crime will be brought to trial before God. There's a verse in the Proverbs that says if we see the innocent being led away to slaughter and we turn around and say, well, we didn't know about it. Won't the person, the God of heaven and earth who weighs the hearts and motives, won't he call you to account for that? When we're supposed to speak up, we have to speak up. When we have to stand for the truth, we can't go with the rest of the office staff and mocking people or participating in lottery and all these things that they do. God hasn't called us to blend in with the world, to be a chameleon, to try to get the best of both worlds. God said, I'll spit you out. Nobody took a stand for the Lord Jesus. Truly, he was deserted. And more than that, he was despised and spat upon and accused and beaten. And imagine hearing this, all of the crowd, imagine being in such a place. When everyone that your eye can see, everyone, everyone, they're all against you. And some people, when they're affected by the devil and their mind is altered, they may think that wrongly. The whole world is against me when they're actually not right themselves. They think everybody's against me and they're going and trying to look for support everywhere. But in this case, it was true. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. His own Jewish people. They would say, his blood be upon our heads, upon us and our children. They took an oath and a curse unto themselves. When we evangelize people, we need to understand. When people get hostile because we mention the name of the Lord Jesus, or we mention that he's the only way, they can become furious. Sometimes it's manifested externally. Other times it could be covered up by a smile for a while. With the same murderous angers smoldering inside. We need to know that the reason is because Satan is fueling that. And no amount of reason can help them. Except when we pray. And we have a holy life and a loving life and a firm stance for the truth, uncompromising. 
We may have such a life and then we pray. Our prayers can be powerful. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, which includes women, righteous person, anyone, avails much. It can actually break that hard heart. We can pray that the eyes are open and all of a sudden scales can fall down, just like it did with Saul of Tarsus. They can have an encounter with the Lord and all of their reasonings are shattered and Satan's on the run. They can get born again. But we need to know the source and that's the point. When someone gets hostile against Jesus, they can talk about anything else. It's because the devil is clearly in control of their lives and he manifests that hatred toward the Lord Jesus. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And this goes also for people who speak righteousness to other people who are Christians. When you tell somebody, you know, you shouldn't drink, they get angry. Why are you judging me? And who said what? And After all, you're telling them something that God doesn't like. You're defiling your temple that God has given you. If you call yourself a believer, they get hostile against the truth. Guess who's talking through them and working and in control? The devil. No matter how many bumper stickers they have about Jesus loves you and Jesus loves me and I love Jesus. And I sweep the church grounds and I do this and that. Do charity. According to 1 Corinthians 13, a person can engage in charity and yet not have charity. A person can give their bodies to be burned and give all their goods to the poor. Do a charitable deed with no charity in the heart, in which case they are nothing before God. It won't count for anything. In the end, any charitable deed that's done must be strongly motivated by a genuine charity or love from the heart. Otherwise, it's useless. It's a show. So when we speak the truth to someone, we show them how they can be more obedient to the Lord. If they get angry against the truth, then the reason they get angry, even if you present rational arguments, is because the devil really has control of their lives. No matter how many times they say, praise God and I love God and I'm so thankful for the word. I'm so thankful. But is the word having an effect on the life? God is patient and merciful. But we need to be honest. These people, they wanted the murder released to them and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. We're in Mark chapter 15 and verse 15. Now he had already been beaten They already spat upon him. They slapped him. They blindfolded him. We saw that in chapter 14, verse 65. The officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Sometimes one slap, sad to say, if anybody's experienced that, engaged in that, can produce a considerable bruise and blood. Just one slap, one punch 
They did it repeatedly to the Lord. And they did it when he was blindfolded. Now they drag him away. Back and forth. Throughout the night, the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, which was the headquarters of the governor. And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple. Now he has wounds and it's going to sting, but they put this robe on him and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him. Hey, hail, king of the Jews. And they surely would have laughed and mocked. Then look, they struck him on the head with a reed, not with a stick. And spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him as a mockery. I wonder how it feels to be on the receiving end of this, if we think about it. The physical pain is one thing, the mockery is another pain. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, so the saying goes. There are people who have said, I'd rather take the sticks and stones, but the words are too painful. They cut right to the soul. They damage a person, sometimes for life. Cruel words. And here, they're mocking him. He has every kind of pain imaginable happening. Can you imagine the nerves, the blood vessels, the skin burning, the pain in the head? the entire body. And he kept going the distance because of my sin and your sins. He suffers so much because of this thing called sin, the three-letter word, which is equivalent to rebelling against God's way for my life. Shouldn't I look to the Bible and see in what ways am I rebelling against God and stop it? Think that he suffers so much so I can be free from this cruel master called sin. For the paycheck we get for committing sin, whether drinking, doing drugs, cigarettes, cursing, being bitter, unforgiving, pride, proudful, or prideful. All of these things are sins. The equal rebellion. That's why Jesus was mocked and spat upon and beaten up and crucified. If that's what caused him to be crucified, I need to part with that thing because his death has to be good for something. Change my life and say, Lord, I've turned, Lord, I've turned. All that you suffer is like a mother or father slaving away, doing two, three, four jobs maybe. Hardly sleeping. Why? To get the child out of poverty. To give a child a better future. They sacrifice themselves. Imagine if the child takes all of that sacrifice from the mother or father who's hardly sleeping and going through afflictions and diseases and pains, just managing because of love for the child. And the child takes it and abuses it and plays video games all day long and smokes on the corner of the street there and drinks and abuses all the freedom and blessing. How would that mother or father feel? How would the Lord feel if we still rebel? When we read this, we think, Lord, what is it in me that caused you to suffer like this? I have to wake up. 
and stop sinning against you. If there's sin in my life, there's a whole catalog describing what sin is in the Bible. And it's up to us. If we love God, we really believe in Him and what He sacrificed for us on the cross, to say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be an unforgiving person. I don't want to be vengeful. I don't want to have these seasons where I feel spiritual and then I go back to being the dragon. Slay the dragon. Crucify the flesh. And say, I'm going to be pure and holy for the Lord every day. So help me, God. This is my life. This is my new life. I don't want to be angry and go back and forth with my family. Try to find a good time for myself. The me, me, me world. I'm done with that. The Lord showed me something else. Love is when you give to others what they need at the expense of your own comfort. Not just the lack of comfort here. He was crucified. Horrible pain. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, this purple robe, put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Bad enough to be prepped for crucifixion with the loneliness and the, especially the innocence that the Lord had. The horror of what's awaiting him. They're going to put a crude nail in either side of his limbs. Going to hammer it there and hurt him terribly. The pain radiating from the wrist all over. The nerve shooting pain. The entire body writhing with the shock. It's a shock into the bloodstream, into the pain centers of the body. But right, way before that, he gets mocked. He gets beaten and bruised terribly. If it's my sin that caused my Lord to die like this, what do I have to do with sin? Is it not a contradiction to say, I love Jesus, I'm so glad he died for me, you know, it tears me up when I read the Gospels or watch a movie about Jesus and try to understand and fathom the depth of what he went through, but I love my sin, I will still drink. Even though it caused Jesus to die for me, to free me from that demon, I still esteem my friends and go with them, even though they don't believe in God and they don't love God, they're dragging me down. There's a tug of war for my soul, but I keep siding with God's enemies, smoking and drinking, doing drugs, being immoral, speaking foul language. God knows all about it, and he says, I still love you. That's the beauty of God. Isn't that marvelous? The one who sacrificed the most and did everything. He said, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to show you love like you've never seen before. Come, live in my love, and everything will change. But within that change, we get a disgust toward the very things that cause the Lord to be crucified. Immorality, hatred, and anger, and bigotry, prejudice, lying. The whole lot of it comes from something called the body of sin. It is a sin, S-I-N, which is the totality or the domain of sins, S-I-N-S. The sins are symptoms of the disease called sin. And Jesus doesn't come to just free us from drinking or drugs or lying and slandering, adultery only. He comes to do away with the root of it all. He comes to take away the root. God loves us. And he says, turn to me while this time. 
Now they found a man, Simon is Simon is Cyrenian, in verse 21, and they compelled him to carry that cross. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus as he was coming out of the country passing by. All of a sudden they picked this man off the street virtually. Hey you, come here. This man's not going to make it. He's already beaten up. We don't know if he's going to make it carrying this cross. You carry it because we need to get him there to the crucifixion site. Some have surmised that this Simon, a Cyrenian, was the father of two disciples. Later on, these names are mentioned in the epistles. Could be that this father saw the suffering and if he wasn't a believer, became a believer and his sons became believers. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. The sites are there in Israel today. This is not some folklore. As many religions have all kinds of legends and they make the kids and the people go ooh and ah. Isn't it fascinating how beautiful and poetic and colorful? Yeah, we can get a moral lesson out of it. It's wonderful. Let's make some music about it too. Emptiness. But this is real. There's a real place called Golgotha in Israel. Although the sites are contested between two sites, still it's there. All of these places are there, including the very garden of Gethsemane. Most importantly, the body is not there, Jesus' body, because he rose from the dead. No other guru, religious leader can ever claim to have raised himself from the dead. Jesus did. And he appears in love all the time, though he has to judge sin. He calls to the entire world, doesn't matter what race, what religion, atheists, blasphemers, people who curse God, can they be saved? Yes, Paul was such a person, he cursed Jesus. But he repented, just like Peter, bitterly, he would have wept. How could I have done this to the Lord? But Paul says this, I didn't know. I didn't know. That's what I thought, and I just carelessly cursed the Lord I'm so sorry Paul did a 180 degree turn the very Lord that he was mocking and cursed and arresting the disciples of the Lord Paul became a premier disciple he said I love the Lord I'm ready to die from right now and he really meant it unlike Peter before the baptism of the Holy Spirit Jesus dramatically changes our lives from the inside out. He suffered. They took him to the place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. He told them, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew in my kingdom. He had such strength, inner strength, though he was suffering so much. And when they crucified him, you can just read this sentence, crucified him. We have to understand the agony. He was hanging for hours on the cross. It's not like an injection. Even the biggest needle people can find. Maybe back in the old days when 
medical treatment was in its infancy, in primitive. Even the worst cruel application of so-called science on a human body cannot compare to the pain inflicted on the Lord Jesus. They continued for hours. When they crucified him, they divided his garments. They don't stop. They don't stop. So filled with demons. The man is dying there. He's in agony. And the soldiers would have heard. The governor didn't find anything wrong with him. Nobody cared. What's in it for me? Look at his garments. It's like when I mentioned uh, a scenario which is hor horrifying to witness. I was there in the evening, late evening, 9 or 10 o'clock at night, waiting for a train to go to the job site some years ago. There's a little store there, and I saw a man just flying out of there backwards and fall to the hard concrete. And pretty soon a crowd came out of the store and from the street, and they're looking at him, and they said, poor man. Somebody had punched him so hard, and apparently he was in a drunken state, this man that was. And the, the man apparently that heard him came out and he spat upon the man who was on the concrete after he had knocked him out. He cursed him and walked away. And people are watching. And among the crowd, there are people who are pitying that man who was on the concrete, drunken as he was, that he should be so despised or despitefully treated. Who knows what's happened to his skull and everything hitting the concrete, but you know, the most horrifying thing was among the people that were there, they're talking to one another and looking around in the street and one of them said, poor man, and he started going through his pockets, the man that was unconscious, and he took a wallet out of there and he ran. This is human nature. Even worse than animals especially because they've been given a moral quality that's become so darkened because it's about me, what I can get. I don't care if people are suffering. If they're busy casting lots to see which part of his garment they can get. Let's play a game. Let's play a game. Let's throw a dice. It's just painful to even think about for any normal human being. But if somebody's used to seeing this day in day out, they say, oh, pastor and people reading this, you don't know where I come from. I've seen a lot more. Doesn't make it right. When we come to the cross, and a person really gets born again, that callousness that develops in the heart, that says, you know what? Not only a person who grows up on the streets, who's seen so much violence and abuse on earth, daily basis and gunshots and people being stabbed and it's the talk of the town, the neighborhood and you go up to your apartment you fend for yourself and you make sure you make it in. You're a hero for the day. And those who didn't make it, well, I guess they didn't make it. And what about the opposite end of that spectrum of humanity, so to speak, people who are in the medical community as I've seen in the nursing home where we ministered people dying and they're mocking them in the ward, nurses talking among themselves and doctors, treating life so cheap, doesn't matter. It's the cruelty of the human heart, gets calloused. But when we come to the cross, the Lord strips away the layers of hardness of heart and wickedness, malice, 
and mockery and callousness and it makes our heart tender again. We start crying when we see someone suffering. What a change. Not weakness. It's a stony heart that's been changed into a heart of flesh. I can feel again. Especially when somebody else is suffering. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. Now, in this case, of course, this is the Lord of the universe that's being mocked. It's not just any old person. The Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. There's no other name. There's none other name under heaven. No matter what people say in religion, we call him this. No, you don't. The name that was given to the Son of God when he was born was Jesus. No other name. This one person, Jesus Christ, coming from Nazareth, that's the one. Not just any Jesus, but this Jesus, the Son of God, the only Jesus. He's the one that was mocked and abused, which makes the crime even more horrible to the extreme. And the suffering that much more painful. Now it was the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning. Nine o'clock in the morning crucified an inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews true statement but also a mockery for the people with him they also crucified two robbers one on his right and the other on his left so the scripture was fulfilled which says and he was numbered with the transgressors two thieves were crucified with him they didn't go through Anything compared to what he went through, even though visibly, physically, they had suffering, the Lord went through a lot more because he was bearing the weight of the world's sins. There's a tremendous agony we can't really comprehend fully. We ended up crying out, Father, my Father, my God, my God, why has you, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? The drama continues here, crucifixion. Drama continues, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days? That's what he said. Save yourself and come down from the cross. It's very painful, isn't it? Somebody's down for somebody to come and kick them when they're down. They kept it up for hours. Likewise, the chief priests also, these people who know the Torah, the Tanakh, the prophets, the writings, the law. They had the Pentateuch. They had the law of God. They're supposed to be teaching people about the law, the heart of the law, which is the love of God. These guys come by in their vestments, in their robes, They're joining among the crowd. It's not just people who we can call off the street with that mob mentality. Something's happening. Let's jump on the bandwagon and join the crowd. They knew exactly what they're doing. They came along too, mocking among themselves with the scribes. Saying, he saved others. They just fueled the riot here. Himself he cannot save. 
this event that we're reading about is the event in all of human history that must touch our hearts, transform us to follow Jesus with everything that's within us. Because love was on full display here. Unparalleled to any other love in the universe. They mocked him. They said, he's talking about salvation. He saved other people. He raised the dead. He might have healed people. And he said, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. I'll build it. A lot of sayings, but look at him now. He's suffering. He's helpless. He saved others himself. He cannot save. Let the Mashiach, the Messiah, Christ, the Anointed One, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Come on, Jesus. Come down from the cross. The lowest hell would be reserved for these people. They're in a blind rage. The devil's just saying, come on, keep it up. Keep mocking Jesus. You're going to be burning with me one day. Even those who were crucified with them, right next to him, the guys who are suffering for their sins, on either side of the sinless one, they start mocking him too. And we know from the other Gospels that one of them had a change of heart. He said, wait a minute, this is stupidity. I can't be mocking him. I know he's innocent. And I'm scared because he's, he's done miracles and the things that were said about him and what he said. He's probably the Lord. He's probably who he said he was. On his deathbed, as it were, as it were, this one thief, he repented and he said, Lord, Please remember me when you come into your kingdom. He actually rebuked the other guy on the other side of Jesus who was mocking. He said, can't you see we're suffering for our sins? He's gasping for breath. We're deserving this. He didn't do anything wrong. Don't mock him. Don't, Lord, would you, would you forgive me? Would you remember me? Is it possible after a lifetime of sin, even on death row, justly indicted and condemned, in the very act of being executed, can a person get born again? See, from the scriptures, scriptures is possible. John Wesley, the famous English revivalist, who God used so powerfully for a massive revival. Many people were drunkards and gluttons and thieves and whoremongers, murderers. They got saved under his ministry. He gave his life to the Lord. He almost died in a fire when he was child. His mother was a godly woman who always prayed and always taught the children God's word and she lived it. Bold woman who obeyed God. She dedicated her children and she called John Wesley a brand plucked from the burning from a deadly fire. This man grew up devoted to God's fear and through him thousands of people got born again, saved from going to hell. He went to people before they were hung. Criminals. At least one occasion he went to a man who was about to have that rope tied around his neck and he was just in horror and he looked lifeless already. John Wesley went and talked to him. Told him about the love of Jesus. How Jesus can forgive him. 
And the man was motionless. Nothing was getting through. And John was, they kept talking to him, telling him the word. All of a sudden, the man's face changed. Something happened. The Spirit of God worked and he looked at John Wesley and said, what you're saying, is it true? Is it true there's a Jesus who's the Lord of the universe? He died on the cross for me. I'm a criminal about to be executed. He died. He was not a criminal. And his blood was shed for my sins and I can be free. I can actually go to heaven even if I've been condemned by the human court. Heaven's court will forgive and receive me. All of a sudden his face lit up. He got born again. He was executed for his crime. But he lives free in heaven. So the thief on the cross on the other side of Jesus received everlasting life. But may no one take the satanic perversion of this truth and think that I can sin a little longer. We don't know the day. When the time will be up, we can never presumptuously say, well, I'll drink a little more, I'll smoke a little more, I'll cuss a little more, curse a little more, lie a little more, be adulterous a little more. I'll live my life, I'll pay my bills on time, I'll make sure I send money back home and, you know, I'm not a bad person. I just believe I'm my own God because I make my schedule, I do what I want. But God understands I need help and I need a society. That kind of presumption is dangerous, potentially deadly. We need to say, Lord, while I have the ability to think, I was even thinking earlier today, how in a moment of time, just a moment of time, a person can lose his or her faculties to think and communicate, where they become instantly at the mercy of other people, instantly. The worst part is when someone cannot speak. They're, they might have been very articulate and very intelligent and very communicative, very persuasive. But when their body loses strength, sometimes we can't even have the energy necessary to open the mouth, let alone form any syllables, hardly any breath. And even with people with good breath, that is, lung capacity is functioning well, Something else is wrong. They can't. They cannot speak and communicate. And what happens? People come and take care of them, quote unquote, and they give them anything they want, whatever they feel like, and they can't do a thing about it. The warning that before we get to a point where we think every day will be the same and fool ourselves, a person who often has been reproved or shown that. They're not doing right by God. They need to repent and turn to Him, hand it over to Him. If they continue to harden their neck, it says in Proverbs 29.1, that suddenly they'll be destroyed and there'll be no remedy at all, any longer. So whereas the love of God is free and it's full, it's powerful, people who keep putting God off, they may come to a point where they cannot make a decision any longer they can end up in hell whether it's a quick death or a slow death the result is the same they will never see life now when the sixth hour had come 12 noon 12 noon the time when what the sun should be its hottest so to speak 
there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. For three whole hours. Darkness. Unusual. God is behind it. You're killing my son? I haven't given permission to come off the cross. He could. He could do anything, anytime. He's God Almighty. But he willingly gave himself like a lamb to the slaughter. So that our sins can be taken away. If he didn't die on the cross, all of us would go to hell. But he did it so that we don't have to go to hell. We can have a brand new life. And at 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Where he got the strength? From that inner man, he would quote directly from the Psalms. In Psalm 22:1, written a thousand years earlier about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Ten centuries before it happened, King David wrote in Psalm 22:1 all about the crucifixion. Even to the point of what the Son of God would cry at the point of death. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is translated, My God, my God, why have you deserted me? Why have you forsaken me? It was too much, but he endured it. Everything. All the pain so that we can be rescued. Some of those who stood by when they heard that, they said, look, he's calling for Eli, Eli, Elijah. He's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Mocking still. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice one more time. I don't know how that would have been, but we can imagine. The last breath. Everything that's within him. Scream. And he died. Then the veil of the temple, so many feet high and so thick, was not cut from the bottom up with some sophisticated machinery or scissors with many men working on it. It was cut from the top down. Symbolizing a direct entry into the Holy of Holies through the body of Jesus Christ. Anyone who comes through the body of Jesus saying he was crucified for my sin, I receive it. I have no other gods, no other gods, but Jesus Christ. They can come directly to the Father, having their sins forgiven through the blood of Jesus. So when the centurion, this leader of a hundred Roman soldiers, who stood opposite him, he's right there, watching the whole thing, saw that. He cried out like this and breathed his last. This man was shaken. He immediately said what was going on inside of him. This normally hardened soldier, that to a leader of these soldiers. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now 
Now, he made that statement, as many people do today. They can say, you know what, I'm, I, there's no contest in my mind. I'm convinced. There's nobody like Jesus. I've heard enough. There's no one like Jesus. There's no other teacher, guru in history, in my religion, in my culture. There's no one like him. He's unique in every way. The combination of his love, his holiness, his power. There's no one like him. But like the centurion, perhaps they never commit to Jesus to make him Lord of their lives. And what happens? Even with the revelation, they can end up going to hell because they never surrender to the Lord Jesus. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene. Remember that woman? The Lord cast out how many devils from her? Seven demons. Seven demons were living in that one body, that woman. The Lord cast out seven devils. She was a free woman. She lived for the Lord Jesus. Whether she was drinking, immoral, involved in witchcraft, and all, whatever was plaguing her or had an effect on her, she was a part of. Everything left. When the demons left, they took their briefcases, they fled out of there. They said, we can't be here. Because the Son of God said, we have to go. And she wasn't left in a vacuum. Trying to make ends meet and restore her life. Jesus restored her life. She had a brand new life. Full of love, full of joy. And she was there for the Savior. A loyal follower of the Lord Jesus. One who was cast out and the devil would have accused her. You're no good. Look at you. You've been prostituting yourself. You've been just wasting away, doing everything wrong. God doesn't want you. Jesus doesn't want you. He's looking for the people who have a better head on their shoulders. Somebody who doesn't do the things you do. The devil would have lied to her, but the Lord came to destroy those lies. He said, no, you're the one I want. The one that nobody wants. The one that is all bent out of shape, as they say, over thinking about your life. What a failure. I'm here to show you God's love and to change you. Not just give you a greeting card. Jesus loves you. I'm going to cast out the devils from your life. And he did. She loved the Lord. Mary, the mother of James, the less than Joseph and Salome, also followed him and ministered to him when he was where? Up north in Galilee. A real place. This is not folklore. You can look at Israel on the map. The places have not shifted. There's no major earthquake that all of a sudden caused a lot of these areas to be gone from the face of the earth or relocated. Still there. Jesus was a real person at a real time, crucified truly for our sins. And when he died and was buried three days later, he rose from the dead. His body's not there. He's coming back to the same Israel on the Mount of Olives where he used to go. Set up his kingdom. He can't be stopped. He's God. These women knew that. They left everything. They followed him and they ministered to him. I should say, when they left everything, some of them were related to the rulers there. They left everything in the sense of inward detachment. They no longer had sin in their lives having a hold on them in their own 
personal desires and goals and dreams. They gave their life to the one who has the best dream and goal for their life. Their lives, Jesus Christ. They followed him. They ministered to him. The other gospel says they ministered out of their substance. They financed Jesus and the disciples, what he was doing. They were thrilled to do that. Because they knew what an honor that God would take from me to be a blessing to him. He doesn't need me. You know what Jesus said to Peter when they had to pay taxes? You recall that he said, go and find that fish. It first comes up, you'll find a piece of money. He knew where all the money in the world was. And he can summon it anytime. But he gave an opportunity to people to bring what they have to honor the Lord. And they always get a blessing in return. These women followed him. They didn't have to, but they wanted to. They loved the Lord. And many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem is in the south, as we often referred to. It's in the south, and Galilee is in the north. How do you say he came up to Jerusalem when it's in the south? I thought you go down to the south, not up. That's because Jerusalem was situated on a mountain. They went up, up to Jerusalem. Now an evening had come because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, the Shabbat, as they say, Jewish vernacular. This holy day, preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. They have rules to follow. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who is himself waiting for the kingdom of God. Anybody who says, you know, Christianity is for the ignorant people. Christianity is for the masses who don't know better. Uh, the superstitious, uh, superstitious people. Christianity is a crutch that people who can't make it on their own, they don't know how to work hard and be industrious and they don't follow through with what they need to do when they need to do it. Uh, they just call upon Christ and they want Christianity as a crutch to support them because they're weak. Here's another man who didn't need anything. He had money. He was wealthy. He was a prominent council member. But he was a man whose heart was changed. He knew. I'm in need of a savior. He himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Coming and taking courage. Went to Pilate. A big risk. He went straight to this man. This ruthless man. And asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. Everything was happening according to God's will. As we often hear. The trial was not one second too soon when it ended. Not one second too late. We can be in God's perfect will. He'll help us complete everything He wants us to complete. Hallelujah. His glory, including suffering in the will of God, which will produce a crown. Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoning the centurion, he called him. Here comes Joseph of Arimathea asking for the body. Pilate wanted to know what's going on with the man that we crucified. This Jesus. The centurion said, He's dead, sir. When he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down from the cross, wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. 
and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. They didn't just come and weep and beat their chest and wail and run back to their homes. These women said, we got to see exactly where they're taking our Lord. It was very shocking. Even though the Lord predicted it, it didn't register with them. And much more to witness all of this, they could have had hopelessness in a bad way because it seems like everything's gone. What happened? What happened? I thought there was hope. And yet the love of Jesus constrained them to continue even though he was dead because they knew that he's the Lord. And they had many surprises waiting for them. The Lord Jesus would appear to them a number of times. Risen from the dead. Oh, my Lord and my God, Thomas would say. When he saw the nail prints in his hands, as the Lord literally walked right past the closed doors where the disciples were huddled in fear, and he said, Peace. It's me. He called Thomas. Showed him the wounds. Thomas fell because before he said, I don't believe he's risen from the dead. I don't believe it. We saw he was crucified. They buried him. There's nothing else. You guys are saying that you saw him. Listen, stop telling me this, that you saw him. Because I think you're, you've lost your minds. You're too much grief. You're hallucinating. Okay, listen. If you want me to believe what you're saying, that he rose from the dead, this is what Thomas said, one of the disciples. I've got to see the nail prints and put my hand right there, my finger. That was his stance. The Lord said, okay, Thomas, here I am. He was shocked. The Lord called him. He said, come. You want to put your finger into the very wounds where the nails were put, driven into my hand, the wrist. You want to put my, put your hand into my side where I was stabbed. Mr. Thomas, reach your finger right here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered, I'm reading from John chapter 20, verse 28. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And the statement must be explained. Physically, everyone other than these people have not seen Jesus. There are people who have seen him in visions. But many have not seen even that. The Lord expects us to believe. We need to understand, it's not a blind belief. Faith can see Him. The heart can see. Perhaps uh, an example, the analogy would be this, how a person who is blind, whether they could see before, in which case they would have memory, with that, they can actually see perhaps a route that they traveled when they had eyesight. Their imagination and the recording they have within their 
minds can actually trace and see that you walk a half a block this way, there's a corner store there, there's a bridge over there. They can see with their heart. And even those who are born blind and never had physical sight, the imagination can work and the mind is capable of constructing images where a route can be followed mentally. How much more when you have faith? It transcends everything because it is living and active. It's a gift from God where I can see the Savior. When I read the words of God, the faith actually acquires the experience. I know that I know that I know this is the Son of God. There's no one else. He really was crucified. He died on the cross. And he was buried. And the third day he rose from the dead. Romans 10, 9, 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you can see with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The final chapter, Lord willing, we'll read soon with that tremendous, beautiful promise that God gives. The God of power imparts power to his people. We're not weak people. When we have God in our lives, we're utterly weak, utterly weak. There's no question. We have nothing at all, nothing we can do apart from his grace. But the Lord who rose in the resurrection power will say to us as we look at Mark 16 next time, I'm giving you power over Satan. And in my name, when you speak my word, signs and wonders will happen. Hallelujah. Because I'm alive. You're alive. Because I live. You will live also. Anyone who believes in me, Jesus said, John's Gospel, and dies will live again. Anyone who dies believing in me will live again. He suffered horribly. They found a tomb, Joseph Arimathea, wealthy man, they put spices and wrapped his body in the linen cloth. They put him away into the darkness of the tomb, rolled a stone on the mouth of the tomb. It's over. Everybody's going back home mourning. They're in shock. Has this happened? All these miracles. He raised the dead. He did so much and he said so much. What are you supposed to do? story wasn't over. Within a short amount of time, they're going to be empowered by the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. It's going to be resurrection power operating their lives. 
unprecedented miracles where Peter's shadow was expected to heal people lying on the street who were sick. Just a shadow. Paul's handkerchief and apron, whatever cloth he had, carried the anointing of God that caused demons to just scream and get out of people. And they got healed. Peter and John would be able to pray for other people who got saved and baptized in water and they can receive the Holy Spirit themselves. Philip would see multitudes of people, including sorcerers, people in witchcraft, get born again. Such a powerful revival. All kinds of supernatural activity happening. They didn't know. And so it is with our lives. Never let the devil box you in. Always thinking about your education, your money, in the bank, your friends, your circle of influence, your network. Never, ever keep your eyes on that if you believe in Jesus and you're living for Jesus. Know that there's no limit to what God can do. He has great plans for us if we pursue Him. Like these women who followed him right to the tomb. They risked their lives. But they would not go back. And the first person that saw the Lord after he was resurrected was a woman. She ran with joy to tell the others. And he appeared again. Whole lives were changed. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father in heaven. You are my hope and my salvation. You are the strength of my life. You are my hope and my inspiration. Lord, unto you will I cry. I believe in you, believe in you, for your faithful love to me. You have been my help in time of need. Lord, unto you will I cleave. Lord, unto you will I cleave. Lord, unto you will I cleave. Father in heaven, thank you. They called us to believe in you, obey you, to follow you. And Lord, to see the wonders and the miracles you have for each of your children. To walk by faith, not by sight. To believe every word you promised. Thank you, Lord. Oh, God, I thank you. Lord, above all things, Lord, we have everlasting life now, right now. We've passed from death to life already because we believed in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. You've told us if we have any other faith, any other belief, any other hope, we cannot have you. But when we surrender everything, and to Lord, only you. We have everything, all of heaven. 
And thank you, Lord, that today whoever has to go and wait on some line to get some things done, Lord, physically or go online, those, Lord, have to go and talk to certain people to get certain things done. Lord, those who have to contend with the physical illness, the things that needed to be need to be done for the body. Lord, those who are thinking about making major decisions, Heavenly Father, you promised that you will guide us with your eye if we look to you. In everything, Lord, you go before us. You say, be of good courage. Wait on me. Be strong and have a good courage. Promise to take care of us. I thank you, Lord, for being with each of us, Lord. That our concerns and our burdens are yours. You promised to always do the best for us. And we know that all things work together for good. For them that love God, to the called according to your purpose. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, for giving us what we need. Help us, Lord, to take it deep into our hearts and meditate on it and not let it go. That we can keep growing, become more like you, Lord, and be change agents in this world with your love, with your truth, your holiness, with a glorious life, Lord. You have an impact that no other endeavor or achievement can have. The Holy Spirit can use our lives like you did these apostles and the disciples. Oh, Lord, that when we pray for people, they get healed. They'll be astonished. When we pray for people who are demon-possessed, they'll be set free. They'll be astonished. The people, Lord, who worship so many other things, they can come to know that Jesus is the real God. They'll be astonished and so thankful. That, Lord, individual by individual, family by family, the crisis and the crises that Satan has them oppressed under, that you'll use our lives, Lord, to go and set them free. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. God who set us free, who are prisoners of our own sins, Lord, of pride and foolishness and foolish living and destruction, casting words that hurt people and hurt ourselves, and carved out our own future by our curses. Lord, you set us free. Unimaginable freedom you gave us, Lord. And thank you, Lord. Help us to share that with other people. That it only comes through your Son, the Lord Jesus, who paid the price, suffered for us. Let us free. We thank you and praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I thank you, Lord, for helping your people today. Helping your people with every detail, Lord. Helping us with every detail. So that all can be according to your perfect will. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we praise you. Amen.